Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello and welcome to RIA Edge. This is Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And we are thrilled to have a very special guest here today. We have Matt Cooper, who is the founding partner and the president of Beacon Point Advisors, one of not only the largest RIAs in the industry, but quantifiably one of the fastest growing firms in the business. So Matt, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. Now, I've watched from a distance over the last couple of years how Beacon Point has evolved and M&A obviously playing a huge role in the way you've transformed the business. Uh, I'm curious to get into really more than anything, the last couple of years, you know, what your experience has been like as one of the leading acquirers in the RIA industry. Also curious to learn you know, how it's going. Um, there's so much attention paid to the deal-by-deal activity but we very rarely hit pause and look backwards, right? And say, how's, how's it working? And are things going the way we want them to? Um, and then I also would love to get your view on the M&A landscape. I think a lot of our listeners are very curious to see how, now that we've turned the page, obviously a couple of months on 2021, and we're actively in 2022, what is, if not your specific pipeline, what does the M&A landscape look like? Before we jump into any of that though, I wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind, Matt, can you just give a little bit of background on Beacon Point for those listeners of ours who are not familiar with the firm? Oh, sure. We founded Beacon Point in 2002 uh, as a single location RIA to serve clients in Newport Beach, California. And, and we remained that way uh, until late 2010. I happened to be sitting in a meeting, one of the custodians I was on their advisor board, and they had a little panel with Rudy Adolph, who people know as the CEO of Focus Financial. And also a gentleman named Mark Hurley, who was one of the early investors in RIAs in, uh, in our space. But they were just talking about the challenges of the business um, and the, the upcoming challenges that smaller RIAs would face because of you know, the demographics of the founders and the demographics of the client base and, and the competition for talent and how technology was evolving in the, in the RIA space and how to stay current and on the cutting edge of that. And this is 10 years ago. And I just thought we could provide some form of solution for the industry and give smaller RIAs all the benefits of scale without them having to take the risks themselves. Um, and we really started this whole m and focus in earnest um, at the beginning of 2011. And, and we're blessed to have a, a small firm in Scottsdale, Arizona with about 110 million join us. That office now has two offices and they're about two and a half billion a decade later. And and that evolved, and we we did uh, M and A for the first eight years with no outside capital. We did it all internally. We hadn't had any outside capital in the in the firm until um, March of 2020, so just about two years ago. And um, since then, we've done another 19 transactions, um, and the firm is now 35 offices and 370 people, and uh, going strong. 
it's amazing how quickly you've done that too. Um, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of growth in the RIA space, obviously over that period, but yours is absolutely some of the most outsized growth. And obviously you mentioned you know, M&A playing a huge part in that. Um, so maybe we can start just by getting into your M&A strategy a little bit. I'm curious, you know, when you're looking at firms or when you have been looking at firms, what is the profile of an ideal you know, partner or acquisition target when you're evaluating some of the opportunities that are out there? So we, we you know, the band that we work around is, is 300 million in AUM to about 2 billion. And that gets us to the run rate EBITDA number that we're looking looking to target. And we're, we're focused on, um, you know, we'll look at different geographies and we'll be opportunistic, you know, anywhere in the country when something um, favorable, you know, comes up, but it's, you know, it's, it's size and growth rates. And, and then we, we spend a lot of time on the people. So the first three screens, I've said it, you know, several times are no jerks allowed, no jerks allowed, no jerks allowed. Um, and then that's because we, you know, we're doing M&A, but we, but we really are, we're looking to create the most collaborative environment that we can. And so we want very smart, you know, self-starting entrepreneurs in the room um, with enough humility to be, you know, great teammates and, and work well as a group. But we, you know, it's, it's hard to have a collaborative environment, have somebody who's difficult in the room. So uh, it's all about the people. We'd love to be in every primary and secondary market in the country, but we're not going to do it. Um, at the expense of the culture of the people. Um, it's mm. not economics first. It's always people first. Absolutely. And I, I, I didn't get the chance to write down quickly enough what your three rules were again. So could you just repeat those? <laughs> I love it. It's a, great, it's a great simple set of guidelines to live by. Um, and I'm also very curious just to get your perspective on how you know, in recent years, you, know, you were one of the first true RIAs to become active in the M&A space. So definitely ahead of a you know, large part of the industry. Um, but what can you say about how the types of firms that are looking to sell um, or be acquired, how, how have they evolved? And most specifically, what can you say about the quality of the firms um, that are looking to a firm like Beacon Point as a potential acquirer? So, you know, I mean, obviously with a 10-year bull market, um, everybody's a little bit larger than they used to be. And so you really have to pick through that and figure out who's who's a real grower, meaning growing an excessive market. And then if you can find a firm that's double digit growth, net of market, that's really exciting. So I think it's it, it because it's such a seller's market and there's such a frenzy around doing M&A and deals, I think a lot of um, less desirable, if you want to put it in those terms, Firms that happen to have uh, a pretty good uh, EBITDA number at the bottom line because of uh, what the market's done for them over the last several years are, are getting roughly the same valuation as some firms of the same size that maybe are really true growers that have a strict, disciplined, repeatable way of bringing in new clients and they can continue that into the future. So I think you know if the volatility in the markets continue and we get any type of pullback, we'll start to be able to really delineate between the two, but right now it's, it's a little more difficult. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and we've seen, you know, over the last couple of years too, just the size of the firms that are being acquired. Um, you know, when I was at Echelon Partners, I would work on our deal report every quarter. And I think it was maybe two years ago, we just saw that the average asset size, you know, jumped over a billion dollars for an yeah. acquired RIA firm, which is amazing because, you know, not that long ago, it was you know, a fraction of that. And you're looking at 
really small firms that they're selling as an exit strategy exclusively. So I'm curious now, I mean, what you're seeing some of the primary motivators are when you talk to sellers, because I know it's never just one thing, right? Uh, I know succession is still part of the mix. Know that there are definitely firms that are you're thinking about what about potential changes in tax laws. But I'm curious, I mean, what seems to be at the moment, the primary motivator for a lot of the firms that you're talking to or looking at? The ones that we're looking at, they're primarily looking to, um, they're not looking to cash out and walk away. They're looking to diversify. And, you know, the same way they coach their clients on diversification, they're looking to diversify their holdings. And so, you know, when they become a part of Beacon Point, they own Beacon Point equity as opposed to the equity they owned in their own single shop, if you will. They're diversified across 35 offices around the country. So their risk adjusted return, it just has a better profile. They're able to put some liquidity in their pocket and then they're able to draw from the resources. But I think, you know, there are other motivating factors. There are um, smaller firms that have predominantly been investments focused, really unable to bridge that gap and become real wealth managers, financial planning uh, oriented um, type firms that are able to dress it up a little bit, if you will, and sell into this market at nearly the same multiple. And so they're taking advantage of that opportunity. I'm not sure how long that lasts, but right now I think it's, it is such a strong seller's environment or a strong mm-hmm. seller's market that that everybody's kind of sticking their toe in the water and seeing what they can what they can do. Yeah. And it's amazing how much interest and competition there is uh, among you know, the buyers. We actually, we haven't launched it yet, but we fielded in the first quarter, uh, the first RIA Edge study. Uh, and there's a pretty significant focus on M&A. And looking at the largest RIAs that were in the study, 85% of them are looking to do an acquisition this year. And I mean, that was, I knew it was high intensity, but that was really unexpected. Um, so I am curious, I mean, with you know, there are not a lot, but there are more, you know, quote, professional buyers now than there have ever been. What is the unique problem that Beacon Point solves for a firm that you acquire or look to acquire? So it's interesting. Um, you know, KKR, who's our our new private equity uh, capital partner, they kind of asked us, hey, look, you guys have a history investing in or acquiring, merging with uh, smaller RIAs that really their growth kind of leveled off a couple of years prior to joining you. And all of a sudden they've They've reignited the growth. You know, how are you doing that? And I said, well, we're getting, you know, a lot of the non-money making stuff out of their way and allowing them to focus where they're most passionate in the business and bringing these other resources, whether it be, you know, the estate planning attorneys in our financial planning group or, or our marketing department, whatever, to bear to, to help them grow. And um, I think what it really is, Mark, I think it's like, if we can find people who really genuinely believe for them personally and professionally, the next five to 10 years are bigger and better. And I'm not talking about just bigger in terms of AUM and revenues and all that, but just for them personally and professionally, it's bigger and there's a bigger future for them than the last 10 years. And you get all those people in a room and they're interacting um, as partners across the country. It's it's uh, good things happen, frankly. And we've we've enhanced our leadership team in the last five years, uh, for example, Kevin DeSano, who's our chief growth officer, his role as player coach, it's it's communicating with each one of the managing directors in the local offices and, and, and making sure everybody understands what best practices are really creating results. And, and I don't know, it's, it's interesting. We've, we've really, I mean, I, I, I'm humbled by it, but we've really com- created one, one beacon point with one one culture. Now each office has their own subculture. You know, Boston is different than Dallas, which is different than Seattle, but um, it, it, it's a neat thing. 
It's uh, interesting to hear you say that because, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you're now 350, did you say, employees across the country in 35 plus cities. That must be very, very different culturally, right? To not only, you know, manage, but to allow people to kind of be themselves, right? To bring out, you know, really just the best uh, of what they were before, right? And allow them to focus on that. Very few people actually talk about, you know, what happens after the close. All stories on our site, lots of other sites in the industry, very much focused on the deal-making activity. But I'm curious, I mean, if you could spend a minute or two letting us know a little bit about, you know, a simple question really, but how's it going, right? How are you bringing these firms together? Where are you seeing some success, some successes and where are you seeing some challenges? So it, it really um, it really starts on the front end. Uh, if you get the right people in the room, Integration and transition is much easier than if you than if you don't. So we have a team. Uh, Carissa Deepass is our chief operating officer, and she has a team that handles the uh, the due diligence process. Well, my team overlaps into that due diligence process as well. But then the integration and transition process is all run. It's a very detailed, organized plan that's thought out prior to execution. And um, we've now done it, you know, 30 times. We learn a little bit more on each on each um, each deal that we do, but we we're, we're open, we're transparent, we're we you know we we tell the the joining partners exact and team exactly what they're about to experience, um, the amount of work that it's going to take, um, where we're going to be there on site to help, where the where we're going to pull the custodians in to help. Um, we run parallel systems for a quarter, two, or three uh, to make sure everybody's very comfortable with our tech stack uh, and the way that we do things before we flip the switch and they come on board. And then we have, in addition to the two Beacon Point Leader Summits where the managing director partners are all in the same room twice a year, we have a financial uh, planning symposium where all the financial planners from around the country are together. By the way, we had to take a year off because of COVID, but. Now we're back at it. And we have a, an operations summit where all the operators are together. So there's a lot of interaction that helps. And we we have um, an, uh, an intranet that we use called Compass, where uh, it's basically like our own internal Facebook. And we're, you know, communicating as a company about business stuff, but also, you know, babies and weddings and charitable stuff that we do uh, in each office. So it's, it, it's, there's a lot of interaction between the offices, which I think really helps the situation. That's great. And especially in an industry that is so fragmented. Um, I imagine, you know, for some of the firms you know, that you've acquired, they were operating in complete isolation, right? To just so and which may be good, right, to some extent, right? Um, but just to have access to a broader network of not just peers, right, but legitimate partners can certainly help with some of the soft learning, yeah, you know, that I think you know, a firm like Beacon Point can offer and bring to the table. Um I, when I just I'm curious in general, when you're Looking at some of the acquisitions that you've done um, recently, we've had this discussion on a few of these episodes just about the need to, you know, is it easier to hire talent or acquire talent? And I've heard more and more that talent acquisition is becoming a primary driver of M&A because of how difficult it is to hire really good people right now. Um, would you just touch on that for a moment? What role do you think the talent acquisition plays obviously growth and expansion is a huge part of it, but where does talent fit into the mix here? Well, I, I think talent acquisition at the advisor level and the senior wealth advisor level, I think that's real. Um, I don't know 
in terms of, you know, uh, technology and uh, investments, other aspects of the business. I don't know if it's that big of a game changer in that regard. And I think it's probably overstated this whole, we're acquiring talent. I think we're acquiring um, talent with respect to uh, great relationship management skills and um, working with clients. We're, we're acquiring talent with respect to business development in a different you know, geographic location. Um, but I would say that, you know, as we get bigger and we have more scale, the and, and we have we have a, an equity that's a, a currency with respect to hiring top level talent, it becomes much easier to hire the bigger you get, um, mm-hmm. more opportunity for folks. And, you know, we, we talk about growing at 15 to 20 percent a year each and every year. And it's it's all about the fact that the future of the business is about having the very best people possible supported by the best possible technology. And you can't attract and retain the best people unless you're growing at 15 to 20% a year. Younger people, maybe older people, I don't know. I don't want to put an age on it, but um, people want a career path and they want a vision as to what what can happen if they perform. Um, And if you're not growing, you can't provide that vision. Yeah. And that 15 to 20%, just to clarify, is that's excluding M&A? So it's looking just at organic growth? Oh yeah. So yeah. our offices grow at 20% or more on average. Yeah. Um, and then when you level, when you layer on MA on top of that, it's uh, the growth rates are, are well, it's much higher than I ever thought they'd be. How's that? <laughs> no, that's good to know. I mean, that's definitely consistent with you know, the growth rates that a lot of the firms we've talked to here have targeted. And it seems like it, once you get to a certain point and you can scale, truly scale. Yeah, the the growth tends to be exponential. Obviously, there's a lot that you have to get right to make that happen. And just one more question, just on the Beacon Point model for our listeners who may not be familiar. Um, like I mentioned before, just the different or the increasing number of professional buyers that are out there. Everybody sort of has a different approach, right? And I know it can be challenging for an advisor or owner of an advisory firm who's trying to navigate the landscape to really understand what the difference between you know all the, the various options are. Um, so if you were to look at Beacon Point, if, and I'm in discussions with you, Matt, uh, do I have to become you know, the Beacon Point brand? Do I have to give up control of investment management? Do I have to use your technology? What, what is a relationship with Beacon Point look like from an, acquire, from a, an acquisition target's perspective? Yeah, so we, we are a fully integrated model. And that's for a reason, because we're trying to drive the greatest possible enterprise value and create the best possible operating platform to serve our clients. And we believe as you know, one firm, one brand, everybody rowing in the same direction, perfectly aligned is the best way to do that. So yes, yeah, but I would phrase it this way. You don't have to, you get to be a right. part of you know, the bigger picture here. And, and you, you get to use our tech stack and you get to leverage our brand and you get to do all this stuff, but it is, it's one firm. And there are other models where, where that's not a necessity, um, but there may be after a different, a different outcome. I don't know. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that. It's uh, more than anything. It's just about understanding the options, right? And it's not that one is better or worse. We hear the term aggregator. Now we hear the term integrator, you know, more and more. Um, So some of this is just really understanding the options in the land and really understanding, you know, if I'm beginning this process, if I'm on an M&A journey as a seller, what's right for me. Um, right. And it, it's with a, in a space that has 10 or 11,000 RIAs out there. I think it's good to have options. So thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. No that. doubt. You, you know what? There's, there's um, just to follow up on that, there's, there's two E's 
two big E's in this whole equation when you're going through this process on the sell side. The first one is economics. And so any model, uh, regardless of how they're approaching it, they can provide you with the economics of a deal, right? What it looks like to be a part of them economically. What will guide the outcome to the quote unquote best fit is the second E, which is emotions. And it's it's interesting. It's it's how well the seller not controls, but guides their emotions to the right out. And it's it's in, that's the the trickiest part about doing this is um, you know M and A looks it looks perfect on a piece of paper with respect to value creation and the spreads between multiples and the accretion and all this kind of stuff, talent acquisition. When you get into a conversation with somebody who is an independent RIA or an independent wealth manager, that independence matters. And navigating the, it's, a, it's such an EQ conversation. The IQ stuff is, is easy. The EQ stuff is where you either get the deal done or you don't. And um, I'm not suggesting I'm perfect at it. I have 20 years of mistakes that help, help me through it. But it, it's just, a, it, it's, I mean, it's a very, very rewarding outcome when you get to a place where everybody's just stoked and it's, you know, it, it's something that's really going to be great for their clients and their team. And then finally the owners do really well when, when you take care of the first two. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And you know, having been through that experience, um, it's not uncommon that people go in with priorities, very you know, crystal clear. Um, I want to do what's best for my clients, what's best for my employees. And then, you know, I want a good deal in that order. But obviously, M and A can have its own energy, right? and very quickly, you can flip that list, right? And yeah. especially with some of the valuations that are flying around out there. So I think the way you've described the two E's, um, you've really simplified what is a very complex. And it's not transaction, right? It is a major life decision when you're selling, you know, a business that you've built and run for twenty plus years. So I always like when people can simplify it. So no jerks. And two E's. Um, those are the the two major takeaways. For, for well, I, I think there's there's another thing that gets lost in this crazy environment too, from the sell side perspective, and that is evaluating the buyer. And most of the buyers, you know, there's some equity element to the consideration that's paid in the deal. And do the sellers do their diligence correctly or at all on on the seller and their equity? So. You know, if it's a large aggregate that's, that's cobbling together a bunch of slow-growing to no-growing underlying firms, you know, what do you get when you put two slow-growing firms together with no plan? You end up with a little larger firm that's not growing. So, what right. does that mean? What does that mean to the equity of the overall entity? Um, where is the where is the buyer in terms of the evolution of their equity versus other buyers? Who is the who is the financial backer, and what's that financial backer's track record in terms of really being able to um, create synergies and, and momentum and, and grow the firm overall for everybody's benefit. So that there's a lot of diligence that needs to be done on the sell side that may be getting lost in these outside outsized multiples that are being paid. Um, that may cost people, they may get an extra turn or two of the multiple up front, um, but the ultimate outcome on the equity they took is not not anywhere near what uh, what they hoped. Yeah. And it's uh it's it's new to a lot of sellers who are going into this process. They've never done it before. There's not a lot of publicly available information right, or easy accessible you know, framework for how deals get done. Um, and I've seen you know, buyers and sellers just when they first start talking, they're speaking different languages, right? Just about the economics of the deal. I mean, they have different, very different ways of valuing businesses. And, and with that, you know, we've touched on the valuation piece. We've touched on the M&A activity. I am curious to wrap up just to get your view on M&A activity across the industry 
for 2022. We've seen obviously incredibly high levels of deal activity in the RIA space. You saw a lot at the end of last year again, and it seems like maybe in the first quarter, things have slowed a little bit. I know it's way too early and we may be at the beginning of a new cycle, but where do you see, or how do you see RIA M&A activity shaping up in 2022? I don't think, so if there is, if capital markets hold up and interest rates don't uh, don't go crazy to the upside, um, I don't see a slowdown this year at all. I think if anything in the first quarter, it's probably more about the number of deals that were done in the fourth quarter and people, yeah. you know, making sure that they, that they're integrating correctly and all that stuff. But um, I don't, in, unless capital markets fall apart and interest rates go up dramatically, I don't, I don't see a slowdown uh, this year at all. In fact, it may even accelerate as the, mm. as the year continues. And is there anything that you would say if you were just looking at you know, the, the types of deals or the motivators, anything that you would expect to be a new or emerging development in 2022? You know, nothing that that strikes me, you know, I don't want to call it a black swan, but there could there could be something that just hops into the market that that surprises everybody. I'll give you an example. Um, nobody even knew who, well, I don't want to say nobody, but I didn't know um, who CI was three years ago. Yeah. I right. do now, and they've they've done a phenomenal job, and you know my hats off to them. But there may be there may be more entrance into the market that that uh, you know shake things up a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, just, no, you know, that, that, focused. That's what I was fishing for. Um, you never know, right? Um, and they made a lot of progress. See, I did in a very short period of time, and I think you can also say you never know with confidence because it, it feels like the RIA industry was like a secret until a couple of years ago. And now you see you know, not just non-US financial institutions getting involved, but obviously you know, PE has had a very significant impact and influence on the composition of M&A activity and just the industry overall. So we'll have to recap in December right, and review um, you know, what some of the biggest surprises of the year in RIA M&A activity were. Uh, but with that, uh, Matt, thanks so much for doing this. Before we let you run, is there anything we didn't touch on? Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? No, you know, I, I think um, I think a good conversation. I mean, if you would have told me that we'd be sitting here, if you would have told me 10 years ago, we'd be sitting here having this conversation and KKR was Beacon Point's capital partner, I wouldn't have believed it. So, you know, where we are 10 years from now, who knows, but uh, it sure is exciting times in the business. Definitely. And that's why, you know, we love having, you know, conversations like this on the RA Edge podcast. You know, the RAA industry has obviously had a lot of success, a lot of growth, has evolved and come a very long way. Um, but I, I still see tremendous growth potential in the industry. And everybody has a different point of view. Uh, everybody has a different strategy and everybody has a different way of executing. So thank you for sharing your story, Matt. I appreciate it. Our listeners will take away a lot. Um, and good luck to them trying to emulate what you've done since you joined and started uh, Beacon Point. But we appreciate you sharing all of your thoughts just around RIA M&A, your strategy and the Beacon Point story. We appreciate you stopping by, Matt. My pleasure. And thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of the RIA Edge podcast. On behalf of Informa Connect and the Wealth Management Group, I'm Mark Bruno, and we'll see you back on the next episode of the RIA Edge podcast. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, 
adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.